On this episode of China Unscripted, Europe is reeling in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And China is trying to play both sides, keeping strong ties with Europe and Russia. But it's failing. Welcome to China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelley Zhang. And I'm Matt Ganeshta. And joining us today is Marika Olberg. She's a senior fellow in the Asia program of the German Marshall Fund and co-author of the book Hidden Hand, exposing how the Chinese Communist Party is reshaping the world. Thank you so much for joining us today on China Inscripted. Thanks for having me. Definitely. Well, so, you know, the situation in Europe has uh, radically changed since Russia invaded Ukraine. I'm wondering, has that changed how Europe is viewing China? So, so far, the, the, the most, the, the largest part of the discussion has obviously been about how large parts of Europe were fundamentally wrong about Russia and how they completely, you know, underestimated what Putin was going to do. Um, however, you are be- we're beginning to see some voices saying that, you know, we've made a lot of mistakes on Russia. And especially in, in Germany, where, where I'm based, um, you know, we've made a lot of mistakes increasing our dependencies on Russian gas, Russian oil, Russian, you know, resources um, to such a degree. Let's maybe not repeat that mistake with other authoritarian countries. And then, of course, the most important example that would always come up is, is China, um, I, I, I still think it's going to be a while before we really get to, to, to like a more fundamental debate of how we can actually, you know, reduce our dependencies on China. Um, but it's, it's been brought up. Um, and the overall, I guess the overall debate environment has just changed quite a bit. Could you tell us what Germany's dependencies are on China right now? So um, on China, uh, the the biggest issues are um, so it's often said that you know our entire the entire German economy is very much dependent on China as a market as a production site is actually often exaggerated. Like if you some 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 people some researchers have started going into the nitty gritty and actually looking at you know who is actually dependent on China, how dependent are we? Um, if we were to, you know, I don't know, lose access to the to the Chinese market completely, how big of how much damage would that cause? And obviously, you can't you can't forecast that super reliably because you know it's a, it's a model and things can be different in reality. But basically, the the main dependencies really are with a number, a fairly small number of large and influential companies that, that have really made themselves dependent on China, both for production, but also for, for sales. Um, that's the German automotive industry, plus a couple of other companies. Um, and then when you look further into that dependency, you, you find out it's actually not not really a one-sided dependency. It's more of an interdependence um, because a lot of the value that is created is actually, you know, a lot of the jobs that are created are, are actually in China. So if say, I don't know, the Chinese government were to decide, you know, we want to, we want to punish Germany um, for doing X, Y, and Z that, uh, that angered us terribly, then if they were to, you know, cut those companies off, yes, they would hurt Germany, 
but they would also hurt themselves because a lot of those jobs are created in China. A lot of this value is created in China. So yeah, they, they definitely be hurting the stakeholder, the, the, the shareholders of those companies, but I, the, the, the impact on, on jobs in Germany wouldn't be as large as it's often made out to be. So that, that, that's a good thing. So once we actually get to a factual debate on, on dependencies on the Chinese market, I think we will find that um, we have a lot more a lot more options than we, we often think we have um, when people, you know, pretend that we're so, so terribly dependent on China and so nothing we do, you know, we, we have to simply go with what China demands of us. Um, we're going to find out that, well, you know, um, we're actually not that dependent and those dependencies go both ways. Well, I think one of the things this, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has kind of brought to light is that it seems like there is sort of this authoritarian block being created by China and Russia. You mentioned at the moment, there's sort of this interdependency between Germany and China, but could we be seeing the rise of essentially like China and Russia forming a block that can just exclude Western powers and function without their economies? So... I'm slightly, I'm slightly wary of anything that posits that there is like a super, that you know China and Russia are best friends forever and are gonna fall, form like a. Xi Jinping gave Putin a best friend medal. Oh yeah, that's, that's really true. Like maybe that that was a that was a bad bad choice of word. He did he did say we're really good friends, um, and you know they they did stand by side by side to proclaim their new authoritarian world order um, on, on February 4th at the very apolitical Olympics, which have nothing to do with politics whatsoever, as we all know. Well said. So I'm not saying that there's no alignment between China and Russia. Um, I do think that what, 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 what holds them together is their like mutual hatred of the West and of the United States. Um, I do think that's like the most binding access, uh, uh, the, the most binding, um, the most binding factor for both of them. The desire to create a world order where there is no no accountability for autocrats, basically, where you know you have big powers that have their sphere of influence, their sphere of influence, um, and in that sphere of influence, they can do whatever the heck they want. Which is, I think, also why why China keeps telling Europe, well, why don't you sit at the table with Russia? And, you know, come up with a new security architecture for Europe, because um, to China, Russia is, you know, the, the logical regional hegemon that should get a say in how Europe is structured, which, of course, is something that's absolutely unacceptable to uh, mo- most most Europeans, um, except the handful that are also friends with Putin. Um, so I, I, I do think there are some limits to what China and Russia can do together for a number of reasons. There's just some things that are going to be missing. However, of course, they can work together and cooperate more closely. Um, And in any case, I guess the last point that I want to make here, because this comes up, I mean, this is an idiotic argument, and we all know that, but it used to be the, oh, maybe we could pry... Russia away from China to like get on our side against China. And now all of a sudden we have this opposite argument where, um, you know, people are arguing that, oh, maybe we can pry China away from Russia and get China to side with us against Russia. And that is a nonsensical argument because even if Russia and China do not have the closest of block alliances, China has its own reasons for wanting to use this war 
to make sure that the West comes out of it weakened um, and not itself and its friends. Um, and China is not going to be siding against Russia with with the United States or with Europe or with anybody. They've made that super clear. Yeah, you just have to look at all of everything they say about the war is essentially like it's America's fault, it's NATO's fault, it's the West's fault. And yet there are still people who are like, we can get them to help us? Well, we need China to help us negotiate with Russia. We we have to rely on China, Shelley. Meanwhile, China's state foreign media is also kind of backing Russia's claim about the Bucha massacre. It's like, oh, you know, Russia says, what about Russia's side of the story? Yeah, it's a little absurd. It's like people are, people are, have such, I, I don't know why people do it, but basically anything that China says that isn't straight up praise of Russia um, is, is seen as, a, as China shifting its position. And of course, the Chinese government knows quite well that, like, they know that they can communicate differently towards different audiences. And you've seen some of that in Europe where, you know, the, the messages that the Chinese government has targeted at Europe have been less, less aggressive, more highlighting the constructive side. They have very much put the blame at NATO's, like had said, you know, NATO and the U.S. are to blame. Um, and they haven't quite realized that this time around America bashing isn't going to cut it in Europe. Like it's worked many, many years, like for, for years, if you go to Europe and you say, you know, America is big and bad and wants to hurt everybody, then that, that, that found an audience in Europe. But under the current circumstances where everybody knows who's the aggressor in this war, it's just not working. Um, so somehow they haven't been able to move away from that. But other than that, they have softened some of their messaging um, and haven't really used the very crazy stuff to in their propaganda targeting Europe. Um, so they're using that um, in their propaganda when they're, you know, sometimes when they're targeting the U.S., sometimes when they're targeting um, the developing world. And they've tried to tone it down towards Europe, but, um, and, and sometimes that's been successful in getting people to think, oh, maybe there is hope we can get China on board. Um, I think some people may simply be hoping that they can get China to tone down its rhetoric a little bit and stop, basically tone down its rhetoric and stop giving this full rhetorical cover to Russia in this war. Like, I don't think everybody's necessarily that stupid that they think China is going to side against Russia, but maybe some people are hoping that if China were to tone down its rhetoric, that would also help in providing less cover to Russia. Um, the, the idea being that right now, basically, China is running around the world um, with its foreign ministers and other politicians getting other countries to sign on to the Chinese and Russian view, you know, Wang Yi going around getting statements from other foreign ministries around the world, um, basically getting getting up the numbers, trying to shore up support for the Russian slash Chinese position. And um, if China were to stop doing that, that would also help. Um, it would, you know, stop, stop undermining the EU position, the European position directly. But I, yeah, my, basically, I, I think we all agree, like, that, 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 that hope is most likely misplaced. I don't see China playing, playing a significant role in, in any of this. And I don't even see China toning down its rhetoric, except when it's talking directly to Europeans, which then is useless if it keeps using the same talking points that are Russia's at home and when talking to, to other countries. Do you think they just haven't realized that 
their messaging isn't as effective as it used to be? Like, have they just not pivoted completely yet? Or is it just that they fundamentally, because they have to be opposed to NATO, for example, that they can't fully shift and make Europe feel better about their position? I I think it's probably a mix of three things. One is that I, I do think their understanding of European dynamics is not great. Like, they have some understanding of inter-European conflict. Like, they know that they can get Hungary to side with China when it comes to, you know, certain statements. They know that there are certain rivalries between different countries inside the EU that they can exploit if they're smart about this. But they're not... The Chinese government does not have a great understanding of the dynamics, the, the, the inner dynamics in politics inside European countries. You can see that when sometimes they will, you know, do events with people um, that are completely marginalized in Europe, but are then, you know, trotted out at the great, so, as the great supporters of China. So that, that understanding of the inner European dynamics is simply not big. Why do you think that is? I'm, I'm just curious because, like, it seems like China perfectly understands the political divide in the United States. And how to exploit that. And yeah. But why Why don't they understand the subtleties of Europe? I mean, obviously, I'm, I have to speculate Speculate here. I don't know why some people like why the Chinese government is ignorant on that. My guess would be that it's simply not seen as that relevant. Like the way that the CCP frames the world is very much centered on big powers. You know, if you if you look at how <clears throat> how the CCP frames any conflict, whether it's that in its own neighborhood or whether it's a conflict in Europe, it's very much about the US being the big bad hegemon that is then coercing its proxies. Wow, that's really Cold War thinking. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's what makes all of this, you know, Cold War mentality talk of Chinese spokespeople so ironic. It's very much it's very Cold War block thinking. It's us versus the United States. And any smaller power, I, I do think, I mean, they keep saying this in their own propaganda that, you know, those countries are only proxies for the U.S. and Europe is just a proxy and, you know, Europe is suffering while the U.S. is profiting from this war. So I really think they don't really view most countries around the world as independent actors as independent countries that have agencies that have legitimate interests of their own that are completely separate from the U.S.'s but happen to align with those interests of the U.S. to a certain degree. Like, that's just not a category that exists in the in the political thinking of the parties. You know, if you don't, if you don't agree with China on something or if you take action against China, it can only be if you're a small country because the U.S. put you up to it. I mean, if you look at, you know, how how China is framing its conflict with the Philippines. If you look at how it's framing its conflict with Lithuania, where it's also, you know, Lithuania is basically said to be a running dog of the U.S., which, no, Lithuania has its own interests. Same for Australia. Like, the Chinese government, the CCP, simply cannot imagine that Australia, Lithuania, the Philippines, Viet Vietnam, any country is acting out of its own interest rather than simply being instigated by the U.S. So... I do think in that regard, maybe the party is falling victim to its own narratives um, that, you know, why would you look at what those countries think 
if your own narrative that you, you know, repeated so often that you now believe in it is that they are only acting as U.S. proxies. So, of course, you look at what the interests of the U.S. are, not what those stupid proxies are thinking or doing. Um, so I think that that's part of the reason. Um, why else do does China not, not understand us, um, what's going on? Um, I think, or why, why, why else does China say NATO is to blame or the U.S. is to blame? Uh, the, the way I've put this um, since the beginning of this war is it feels like both Putin and Xi Jinping are drunk on their own rhetoric of great changes unseen in a century. You know, they've repeated so often that, you know, the world is undergoing change. The U.S. is in decline. China and other powers are on the rise. I do think that's something that really, that belief fundamentally informs their decisions. And that's also why I think the CCP was so upset when, when Europe told it you're on the wrong side of history, because determining the right side of history, that's the prerogative of the party. And no, you know, you don't ha can't have, you know, Europeans go do that. And that's why they immediately shot back. No, you're on the wrong side of history, because again, in their view, history is moving in a direction where the US is declining and China is rising and everybody who doesn't fall in line is on the wrong side of history. Well, that's a social evolution of Marxism, communism, like inevitably society moves towards communism, socialism, communism. So of course, they're on the right side of history. Yeah. But I do think I do think there is, you know, the, I, I, I do think that again, political leaders inside the CCP have fallen victim to their own rhetoric here. And they can't, you know, they can't really move away from it. And then the third factor I was going to name for why China is sticking with this approach is, and again, obviously, I think I'm not the first person to say this, but I, I guess it's quite what we can see is that the current political environment inside the party in China isn't conducive to people who have a nuanced, well-founded, rational take on other countries and who have this good understanding of those complex dynamics and who communicate those complex dynamics in a rational fashion to the top leadership. Um, the current political environment seems to be more conducive to producing wolf warrior types who um, confirm to the top leadership its own biases, its own views of the world, um, and therefore probably significantly help reinforce those, um, those biases. Um, so those are the main three reasons why I think, why I think China isn't, isn't moving away from this blame, blame NATO, blame the U.S. rhetoric. That last point is really interesting because it makes me think about after the Tiananmen Square massacre, the party instigated this whole patriotic education campaign because they didn't want university students getting the idea that they could start protesting the party uh, or for basic human rights. Um, and now you have like gen like a couple generations of people who have grown up under this sort of rigid ideological framework and now they're getting into positions of power. And like, did that actually come back to bite the party in the end? It solved... It solved one problem for the party, but then just created another massive issue. Something to ponder. Quite possibly, yeah. Um, I, I do think, again, there's still, there's still people in the government right now that didn't necessarily grow up in those times. Um, and True. I think they're just being sorted in other ways. And, you know, the people that are more likely to have 
uh, differentiated, nuanced views or, you know, just eliminated fairly quickly or marginalized. I mean, marginalized fairly quickly and not in a position where they can where they can tell Xi Jinping the bad news. Just like I, I, I could imagine that right now in Russia, people don't want to give Putin bad news. Nobody's vying for that position where you, you know, give Putin the updates on the war. No one wants to be sitting on the other end of that really long table. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. It just seems like a bad spot to be on the on that terrible table. So here, um, drink this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, god. It's, it's kind of it's kind of absurd how drinking asking someone to drink tea, you know, because to me it's got such a Chinese meaning of you know simply bringing someone in <laughs> to give them a lecture on how they need to be more constructive. But of course, in the Russian context, it takes on a more sinister radioactive they've subverted tea that's their greatest Uh, crime (laughs) well i do think that there's something about the entire when you were talking about how nobody wants to be the person to give xi jinping bad news or putin like there's something about the entire way that the chinese communist party is set up that you know everybody is afraid of um, being the bearer of bad news like nobody wants to be for example the city that zero covid doesn't work in right no mm-hmm. one wants to like you just never so even if you had this nuanced view or you thought that you know maybe we're shooting ourselves in the foot by being so aggressive uh you're not going to say that if you want to keep your job intact etc yeah which really yeah. isn't new i mean nobody wanted to tell mao hey you know what maybe farmers should farm <laughs> <laughs> yeah you... um it's, I mean, it's, it's been it's been a real problem. Um, it's been, I mean, the, the the ironic part is, of course, it's been identified by the party as a problem, and for years, like the, the party actually had campaigns to counter this baoxi bu baoyo, like only reporting the good news and not the bad news. They were like trying to counter that, but in the last ten years, it feels like that's really done a one hundred eighty degree turn, and you know, it's clearly it's clearly a situation again where. You don't want to be the bearer of bad news. You don't want to be the city where COVID breaks out and then you get fired or worse um, as an official. So, yeah, it's it's not a great situation. It's pretty dangerous since, you know, stuff doesn't stay in China or in Russia. You know, earlier you had mentioned that there were some limits on, speaking of China and Russia, on how China and Russia cooper- could cooperate. What are some of those things that you know, they might want to do, but they don't have the ability to. I think there is a number of things where I'm, I'm not sure that I'm the, the best expert on this. But, you know, when people talk about, you know, you can have the yuan as the new international currency. Um, there's obvious limits on that, um, on on the use of the renminbi as international currency. Um, there's just simple st- steps that CCP is not going to take that would be necessary to, to, you know, for the yuan to actually replace the dollar is like, so far away from 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 becoming that um, <clears throat> that that's yeah uh, the the idea itself right now is still considered absurd by many. So there's simply certain things that if you're an authoritarian country um, with little international trust, like with little trust internationally put in your domestic institutions, that are harder to do. Um, for which you need you know you need to have a functional a functional legal system, functional rule of law um, for others to actually trust you, to put to put their trust in you, um, that, you know, it's not going to be completely politicized. 
but other than that, again, I I do feel that China and Russia are mainly bound together by their mutual dislike of the West. And my point here is not to say that the fact that they are mostly bound by that makes this this alliance, friendship, block, whatever you want to call it, irrelevant. Like you can achieve a lot just running on that mutual, mutual having a mutual enemy. Um, you you can you can achieve a lot, and you're willing to give the other side a lot simply going by that. So the point that I usually emphasize is just because <clears throat> there is no 100% trust between China and Russia doesn't mean, again, that you can pry China away <coughs> from Russia um, and can, you know, get China to side with you against Russia. That's just not going to happen. The way that the CCP looks at this is like very much you go against your principal enemy and China's principal enemy is the U.S. and not Russia. Well, I think one of the things that China is particularly terrified about that has come about because of Russia's invasion is, uh, you know, how Zelensky has been, you know, really sticking it to the UN saying, you know, kick Russia off of the Security Council. It's absurd that they're on the Security Council. And if you don't just dissolve yourself because you're not doing anything. And, you know, Russia has been kicked off the Human Rights Council. China also sits on the Human Rights Council, is also on the Security Council. This is a conversation they do not want happening. They don't want anyone talking about the idea that someone, one of the countries on the Security Council can be removed. Absolutely, because they've, you know, they've come to a point where they have, you know, they have fairly, fairly good control over the UN system simply by being able to prevent any meaningful action with veto. um, And by, you know, using other structures such as the Human Rights Council to prevent criticism of its own human rights record or to even hijack it to get praise. Like when you have, when you have the country reviews, you always have this absurd situation where China gets so many other countries to praise its human rights record, rights records, and then make suggestions such as improve your, like tighten your anti-terrorism work, which is basically, you know, another country saying to China, you know, crack down harder on the Uyghurs. Um, So it's, com- it's, it's in a situation where it has a pretty good control over UN structures and where it succeeded in making a lot of the organizations at the UN quite useless um, in, in doing their job. I don't think they've, you know, rendered it completely useless, but they've definitely watered it down quite a bit. So seeing the tide turn on that is, of course, viewed as a huge threat on the gains that China has made on that front. Here's something I've I've been wondering about. When Biden was running for president, he he was saying he would work with uh, America's allies, particularly allies in Europe. And this was kind of in the framework of doing something to counter the Chinese Communist Party. Do you see that having happened? Um, yes, to a degree. Mm-hmm. Like you have a lot more coordination mechanisms where both sides of the Atlantic come together um, to discuss, you know, China, um, the current, the current war in Ukraine, Russia's war of aggression in Ukraine has certainly also actually strengthened the transatlantic alliance and has brought them more closely together. <clears throat> so I, I think, that, I mean, there's always room for improvement. Um, and, you know, I, 
I, you know, I often criticize my my own government, the German government, for having been way too too much focused on engaging China and on ma- making economic gains. Um, I think there are definitely parts, like there are definitely um, parts of the in the U.S. like you know certain businesses, certain lobby groups that actually are a little too German for my liking, and trying to push the U.S. government in that direction. Um, but by by and large, I guess there has been pro- pro- progress um, on on working together. Um, those things are hard. Uh, making progress on on international cooperation is hard. So of course, I am perpetually disappointed. But that also, I also don't want to pretend that nothing has happened because that would also be wrong. Like there has been significant progress. It's more a question of is it going to be enough and is it going to be fast enough. Um, for for the challenge that we're facing, could you give us any specifics? I'm just curious. I mean, the the U.S. and Europe they meet very regularly. They have a, a ton of working groups on on different topics, you know, such as you know trade and technology. Um, they, they have all those mechanisms where they meet and where they where they um, coordinate. Um, I'm usually not part of those conversations, so I you know can't give you can't give you details on what they're actually talking about beyond what's being released. Um, but a- a- again, progress has been quite big, at least from the outside compared to what you had before in terms of lack of coordination, lack of talking about this. I think there has been some progress made in getting Europeans more interested in Taiwan. Um mm-hmm. Whereas before, you know, I that wasn't, I don't know, it wasn't really on the radar of most European countries. And I think that has changed quite substantially. And there's definitely more coordination between the US and European countries on, on, on you know, Taiwan, any, you know, security issues in the Taiwan Strait. Do you think Russia's invasion of Ukraine has done anything to raise concerns about Taiwan, that China could do the same thing? complex issue it's certainly raised in europe it's not something that's not discussed and then you have a lot of people with very strong opinions on this like some people will immediately scream that you can't compare taiwan to ukraine whereas some people are saying well actually we underestimated russia on ukraine maybe we should stop underestimating china's ambitions on taiwan um you know so those two issues have definitely been linked my my personal take is Yes, people should like it's 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 good that the current war has raised I guess Europe's attention level. There's differences in Taiwan and how 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 an invasion of Taiwan and Ukraine would work. You know, Taiwan is not super easy to invade. <laughs> there are some some limitations on what you can do. It's I think objectively harder than invading by land to to have this, you know, invasion. Um, of Taiwan. However, I do think, I, I do think currently people in Beijing are watching and they're adjusting their strategies. They're probably, you know, going to be adjusting how they approach urban warfare because they're going to assume that Taiwan is understandably going to, you know, improve its strategies on urban warfare, le- learning from Ukraine. Um, I, I, I don't know if it's super helpful for for the line, if the line that NATO and especially the U.S. has taken to draw this line in the sand and distinguish between 
NATO and non-NATO countries. Um, I mean, they've basically drawn a line in the sand saying, you know, we will we will defend NATO countries. We will not defend, directly defend. We will not go to war for Ukraine. Um, I do think this distinction between NATO and non-NATO countries is probably also registered somewhere in Beijing. Um, I do think people in Beijing are probably registering the immense reluctance of NATO to go to war with a nuclear power. I mean, they knew that before. Um, they knew that before, but it's currently in action. So I think the current the current war is definitely, I think, sending some signs to Beijing that might encourage it, but also mm-hmm. some discouraging aspects. Like, you know, even if you think, like, Putin probably thought if you can, that you can take a country in one or two weeks, this can go very, very wrong. Um, so in, in any case, I don't think Ukraine and Taiwan are directly comparable, but I do think it's very important not to not to commit the same mistake again that we did with Ukraine, that just because we think something is irrational, that the other side also thinks an invasion is irrational. Because um, people might just have different standards by which they evaluate the pros and cons of taking such a big step. Um, well, on a related note, um, I'm I'm curious how Europe is um, sort of handling the situation of being very dependent on Russia for a variety of things. How they are dealing with the fact that they have to, you know, deal with this in this kind of wartime situation because. If something ever breaks out with China and Taiwan or there's some other kind of situation, the world is very dependent on China. The U.S. gets most of its medicine from China. How? So we need to see the lessons of like, how is Europe uh, becoming less dependent on Russia in the midst of this? Because we might have to do that with China. So they've, they've kind of come up with expedited plans <clears throat> to replace Russian like energy. Um I can speak mostly to what Germany has been doing. Um, and, you know, we've sent sent our minister of economy to Qatar to cut a deal with the Qatari government, right? So they're 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 making all kinds of they, they're basically looking for solutions all over the place, and some of those solutions are better than others. However, I think most of them can probably be justified in the in the long in the short term. It's like, you know, if you need to make yourself independent of Russian Russian oil and gas as fast as possible. Then of course you're going to be you're going to be doing things that you weren't willing to do before. Um, so they're they're expediting that. Um, that's they're not they're not willing to cut to, to to cut it off. Cut you know to say we will stop importing oil and gas. They have I think very recently agreed with at the EU level to <clears throat> stop importing Russian coal at I think in mid August. Um, which coal is fairly insignificant compared to oil and gas, um, but the, but they've agreed on that at the EU level. Um, for in, in the German case, they're trying to get away from that dependence as fast as possible, but of course that's really not fast enough for Ukraine. Um, I think it's you know it's, it's it's simply taking too long. That's one thing, and that's the other thing that I worry about when it comes to dependencies on China. Which, of course, you know, you have big companies that are dependent on China as a market or as a production site, but you also do have those dependencies, such as in medicine. Um, and I feel like without, without the incentive of like a concrete war, like without being in this in this crisis situation, um, reducing those dependencies is probably going to move too slowly. 
Um, right now, we see that you know, with with Russia, we have this very concrete crisis, where continuing as before has like very high costs for Ukraine, and they're already they're already operating in crisis mode, but it's still slow. So, without having this concrete crisis in the Chinese case, um, I'm worried that we're going to move even more slowly, and that some people might argue, but you know, we're already our economies are already taking such a big hit. Do we really need to cut China mm-hmm. out in this and that area now? At the same time, won't thus make us less prosperous? You know, that's the, usually the argument you're going to get in Germany. They 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 know they need to reduce their strategic dependencies on China, like in strategic sectors where China could use that sector to actively harm us in a conflict. They have written that in the German case and to their coalition coalition treaty. We currently have a coalition government in Germany um, between three parties. And in their coalition agreement, it basically says we have to reduce strategic dependencies on China. I'm, I'm really more worried that it's going to be much too slow and much too reluctant and that a lot of the mistakes that were made with Russia are going to be repeated with China despite the current environment. I mean, I wonder when you said earlier in the podcast about Germany's dependencies on China and how sometimes their the perception of the dependency is like the the de- dependency is greater than the actual dependency. I wonder if that's also kind of slowing down the process because then you have you're more likely to have people argue things that like we're you know it's just too big. Like we need them. Like we can't. You know. Um, and then you have the pressure from the companies that are making a lot of money in China that that don't want to have to pull out or reallocate or whatever, um, that it that the perception of the dependency becomes a bigger stumbling block in some ways than the actual dependency. Well, yeah, especially when it's like BMW having this loud voice and lobbying specifically, right? I mean, you, you have a distortion of reality when you have a small number of large, powerful companies that are sort of pushing a particular worldview. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a big part of the problem <clears throat> that um, those, those that have a real interest in not making this happen can use this lack of concrete knowledge to argue that the dependency is much bigger and we're going to hurt ourselves much more, which is why it is so important to disaggregate this, to look at this in detail, um, to come up with actual studies like where do these dependencies exist, where are they one-sided, where are they mutual, and where can we, even in times of, you know, not 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 an imminent, not not, a, not having a crisis compared to that which we currently have with the war in Ukraine, where can we start reducing that in meaningful ways as fast as possible? Um, that that's really the work that we need to look at it in detail, <clears throat> and then start start get going on it, um, and not repeat the same mistake. But I'm, yeah, um, that's gonna be it's gonna be I think a bit of an uphill battle. I mean, fortunately, there's lots of other authoritarian countries Europe can get oil from, and lots of great you know authoritarian and and developing countries. Uh, they can get manufacturing like Vietnam. That's a beautiful communist country. I mean, you can get your stuff made in. Well. But we'll. <laughs> I, I mean, I know what you're saying, but I just, uh, yeah. I mean, there's not going to be a perfect solution, right? Is it better for it to go to Vietnam than China? It it is. I would say that the phrase would be it's less bad. Yeah. 
Vietnam, the, the communist government of Vietnam is a threat to its own people. But, I, but geopolitically, Vietnam is not a threat to the United States or Europe. It's essentially a, a log. What? What? Well, compared to China, it's better than bad. It's good. <laughs> it's, it's the log way of looking at geopolitics. Okay. I... It, it rolls downstairs, rolls over in pairs, rolls over your neighbor's dog. Do you feel like that applies as well? Or is that just taking it too far, Chris? Uh, yeah, I think you did take it too far, Matt. Back I never the really thought that we'd have a Ren and Stimpy <laughs> reference. You clearly have never watched this show then. This show or Ren and Stimpy? Because Our I actually show. never watched Ren and Stimpy. What? Our, hold, hold on. Pause the podcast. We have to. We have to show Shelly several seasons. strict Chinese parents. I don't know why this is like really very surprising. Are, are we, we have an important question for you, uh, Marika. Yeah. Have you watched Ren and Stimpy? No. Oh my goodness! I mean, wow. I don't, no. I don't know that that really was broadcast in Germany. <laughs> yeah, so, so you've just been confused for the last few minutes. Like, what yeah, are we talking yeah. about? Yeah. Okay, I was gonna All ask. Right. I was gonna ask. <laughs> it's a reference to a '90s children's uh, children's <laughs> animated <laughs> show. It should TV not have show. been for children. Yeah. No. But, I, but I also, I wasn't allowed to watch TV as a kid, so um, even if it had been shown over here, I wouldn't have seen it. So. Uh, well, so the nice thing about uh, being derailed in a conversation is you can get back on the rails. Yes. What, what were you talking about? Oh, Vietnam. Oh, Vietnam. About, about how you, oh, yeah. Europe can get Alternatives. stuff made oh. in other places that are marginally less bad than China. I mean, it's a start. Yeah. Like, I think the problem is when, like, look at what happened with COVID and, you know, China essentially prohib prohibited exports of masks, right, in the early days of the pandemic. And then um, when we had that guy on our podcast from Prestige Ameritech, like one of the only companies that makes surgical masks in the US, and he was talking about now Chinese masks are flooding the market. Like over the last year or so, after they stopped restricting exports, they instead essentially sought to undercut any other companies that so like US we went, taxpayer dollars went towards buying Chinese masks. Yeah, we California right spent three billion dollars on Chinese masks. We went right back to yeah. doing what we were doing before, but more so. And then look at your COVID test, right? Like if you have an at-home COVID test, like the chances are it's made in China. We're China addicts. I, but I think that's 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 part of the problem is like a lot of the solutions where we you know bring production home to our own countries is just not economical and non-crisis times like it's great when you have it in times of crisis when china restricts its exports but then once china starts you know not doing that anymore then the, the products here can't compete um i think that's that's the problem so how can you how can you secure your supply in the long run still have products that can compete and not not deal with that and i think yeah vietnam i, I think a lot of companies have actually done that and they're they're starting to do that um, and it's apparently, and again, it's not my area of expertise, but apparently it's getting to a point where it's becoming more difficult in terms of capacity in Vietnam, um, and where companies are finding that is like, they, they're forced to find an alternative. And many, I think are looking hard for an alternative because this whole COVID lockdown supply chain issues really freaks everybody out. But it's also that China has been in that spot for so long. It's like simply very specialized in providing these um, 
manufacturing services. And that is not, is possible, but not super easy to build that up quickly elsewhere. Um, so that, that I think is some of the problems that, that some of the companies are facing. But I think, I also think that, um, you know, this is an issue they're going to face at some point. So they need, they need to try harder to make themselves less dependent. Yeah, I'm just thinking of the UK that, you know, just recently allowed a Chinese company to take over their largest microchip manufacturer. You, they they said it wasn't a security concern because China already had that technology. Or it's, like it's, it's oh, not the technology, it's their control of the manufacturing. I mean, it seems like I mean, you mentioned like unless there's a crisis, we're not going to do anything. So it seems like we're just digging a hole for ourselves and China could bury us. Well, in the, that the, the good news, Chris, is that the UK doesn't count because it's not in Europe anymore. Yeah. <laughs> we, the one advantage that we now have in Europe is we can we can point towards the Russian example and, you know, say that you are arguing that we can't afford to not buy Rus Russian gas and oil. Um, and you kept arguing for it. And now you're crying about how, you know, if Putin shut, shuts it off, you're going to see German industry die. And, you know, let's let's not repeat that scenario um, in the future just with another country. Um, so it's we now have good arguments. It's more a question of can is you know is the voice of those arguing for that going to be strong enough to argue against fairly fairly big, reasonably politically influential companies um, in Germany, and that is you know it's, it's not it's not exactly a fair it's not a fair fight. <laughs> Do you think that um, China's attitude towards Europe, like even pre the Russian invasion of Ukraine, um, has had any effect on how Europe has seen China over the last few years, like with COVID? Also, um, like that, that sudden, well, it seemed sudden scrapping of that deal, the economic deal between the EU and China. Mm -hmm. Like, were there things happening already pre Russia that were affecting Europe China relations? Yeah, absolutely. This is not this is not something that's now coming out of the blue. Um, relations between Europe and China had been souring for several years, and for a number of reasons. Um, one of them was like I don't know. People used to say, you know, China and Central and Eastern Europe were really close. That was never really the case, and in part that was because Central and Eastern European, European countries had hoped for much more investment from China, and that just never really came through. Um, so they were already not very um, enthusiastic then in the <clears throat> bigger in, in, in Germany, um, German, the German government had introduced investment screening because they were getting nervous about China buying up basically all, all successful and more advanced German companies basically after a German robotics maker was taken over by a Chinese company. Um, they started panicking about that. Um, then you had the COVID shock, where I think the Chinese reaction, the Chinese government reaction to that and the way it was like very demanding and very much asking for public praise for its own COVID policies and thanks and I don't know, three three bow, bows and uh, maybe dancing on the tarmac mm -hmm. for every delivery of, um, of masks or any other PPE did not impress people. Um, the fact that, you know, the, the handling had allowed COVID to spread. And now China was asking for praise for its handling of the outbreak that did not go down well. And then um, the the episode you're referring to, Shelley, 
um, last year when the European Parliament sanctioned actually a very small number of Chinese officials plus the Bingtuan, the, the Xinjiang production, um, the, 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 what's the English name? I keep forgetting. Oh, yeah, like XTPC um, or something. Xinjiang Production and Construction yeah. Corps. Um, yeah. Wow. When they sanctioned them plus a, a small number of fairly minor officials, then China hit back with like very major sentence, major sanctions against parliamentarians and against um, think tanks, including my former employer, Merrick's. Um, that really did not go down well. So that was when the comprehensive agreement on investment was put on on hold on ice. Um, and I don't really, I mean, I don't know. I don't, I don't think it's dead until I've buried it myself. But mm-hmm. I, I, I do think there's not very high chance of that being resurrected anytime soon because I don't, I don't see China removing their sanctions. China is basically saying you need to remove your sanctions first. I don't really see that happening. Um, the EU removing its sanctions on those Xinjiang officials plus the Bingtuan. I don't think that's viable. It's a viable option for them at the moment for good reason. Um, so I don't really see that that's going to be resurrected anytime soon. And with China now so clearly, even though it's officially neutral, but quite clearly through its words and actions siding with Russia, that is not going down well. This is, and again, this boils down to this being an it's an existential issue for large parts of Central and Eastern Europe, including the Baltic states, which I think China still doesn't fully understand that this is like what itself would call a core interest <laughs> uh, and an existential issue for those countries. And I don't think it's fully realized that the way Germany, this is discussed in Germany, is essentially what we have here is another madman throwing Europe into chaos. So basically drawing a parallel with, with Hitler Germany here, not not a one-on-one parallel because there are obviously is is luckily not at that level yet, but it is very much viewed as unacceptable to side with Russia on on this one in in Germany as well. Well, don't worry, we're on the internet. We can compare everything and anyone to Hitler. <laughs> it, well, I was actually thinking. Well, my, my my point is my point is you actually you, you don't usually do that in Germany. Uh, it's like you know, <laughs> big no for historical reasons. It's, but it's it's it started happening again. Like people are sort of doing that, and there's basically what people are saying is what we currently see is something we hope to never see again after 1945. That's usually mm. how it's how it's phrased. So they don't say Putin is Hitler or anything, but they do see. What we currently see is something we haven't seen since 1945 and that we were hoping to never, ever see again in our lifetimes. And that's a pretty strong, that's a pretty strong framing um, of that. Like that's, you know, that, that's n- maybe not as existential as it is Central and Eastern Europe, but it's very much viewed as uh, the way it's often, the, the term often used is the breaking of civilized norms or the breaking of civilization or basically, Yeah. Like Germans have strong opinions on this too. Yeah. Well, like they, they don't want to say Hitler. They just draw a little mustache on Putin. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, but, but the, so what, what it reminds me of is because if, if Putin is the equivalent where if, if Putin's Russia is the equivalent of Nazi Germany in this scenario, is China the equivalent of Imperial Japan in that scenario where you've got this alliance of, of powers that like, you know, Nazi Germany and Japan, like they had some common interests, but they're also very, very different. Right. And also, you know, one of them, but they probably both thought the other was inferior. 
uh, racially as well as otherwise, but they, yeah. So like, this is like a weird thing. Right. And, and so, uh, like the China Russia Alliance also seems to be like, you've got so many cultural differences and ideological differences like that to me seems that it would put that Alliance at risk. I don't think people would, you know, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't know of anyone who had drawn such a comparison. And I do honestly, and with all my heart, hope we don't get into a situation where we have anything comparable to what we had in World War Three, because, um, yeah, at World War Two, to what we heard, but you know, I, I just hope we don't get there. Well, um, fortunately, the the person who hates that comparison the most is China, hating to be compared to Japan. So maybe for that reason, they'll avoid it. Right. Well, I mean, so so this kind of brings it back to something we were talking about earlier, which is that Russia is blaming NATO for this in a sense, right? Like, oh, if, if NATO hadn't been so strong or aggressive or whatever, or the running dog of America, then... Like this wouldn't have if happened. If NATO had pinky sweared to never let Ukraine in, we wouldn't have been forced to invade to protect ourselves. Right. Yeah. And so uh, that argument uh, is stupid, but also I think it's important to to look at that and 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 understand whether some kind of equivalent uh, NATO equivalent, but with respect to China might be of value so i think one thing that china has done in this war is and this kind of what puts it in this weird position because you know it it it, it talks about russia's legitimate security interests but then it's also always very quick to point out that you know taiwan and ukraine not the same because taiwan is not a country and Ukraine, you know, we're not going to come. We're not going to comment on what Ukraine is because we don't want to offend Russia. But we're not going to say it's not a country because we do recognize it and we do have a secure security agreement with Ukraine. I think China basically promised to defend Ukraine in case it ever suffered a nuclear attack. I think that was in the agreement. So they can't fully say, you know, Ukraine is just a part of Russia. Um, but they're very quick to point out that, you know. Taiwan's different because it's not a country and nobody recognizes Taiwan as a country, as the Chinese government would say. Um, so I think what they're doing right now, while they are trying to give maximum support to Russia, I think they also do try to keep up the rhetorical, the rhetorical framework that basically says, of course, it's completely our legitimate interest to take Taiwan because it's not a country and it's ours. Um, and when we do that, it's not even going to be comparable to what Russia is doing in Ukraine, even though I don't think they've come out and directly said that, but that's kind of implied. It's not going to be comparable because, you know, that that's simply a province of ours um, and we have every right. Um, and I think they've, they've tried to incorporate that in, in much of their language. Um, <clears throat> and I think at some point, um, I keep I, I forgot where this was the reference was maybe you can help me but at some point they made this comment how China is the only country that hasn't you know realized full national reunification um, they they include that in the statement as part of um, a commentary on the the war in Ukraine um, 
So they're they're trying to keep laying that rhetorical groundwork um, on on basically denying Taiwan the right to exist as you know an independent political entity. And there it, it runs into trouble drawing direct comparisons with Ukraine because it also recognizes Ukraine as an independent country. Um, so that's it's, it's, it's a difficult position, but then again, hypocrisy is not really a huge problem for the CCP. So, you know, they're, they're doing their best. Well, Taiwan has certainly become, uh, a fracture point for, you know, Sino-European relations. Like uh, we were briefly mentioning Lithuania, but, uh, you know, maybe we could talk about that. Like, can, like, is that situation where Lithuania showed really like a minimal level of support for Taiwan and China freaked out and essentially launched a trade war with the country. Was, is that like being taken as a warning for the rest of Europe? Um, I'm sure it is. I'm sure it's had the effect that China wanted it to have. Um, it, I, I don't think any other Europe. So I, I think China got what it wanted and that I don't see any other European country doing any of this because um, the consequences were quite severe. It wasn't just <clears throat> cutting off Lithuania because um, Lithuanian direct dependence and exposure to the Chinese market is quite small. It was leaning on others to basically cut Lithuania out of global supply chains by saying, well, if you, big German automaker, uh, include Lithuanian parts, then tough luck, you're not going to be able to import those or export those products, etc. Um, at the same time, I mean, this is, you know, and when China talks about how it's opposed to sanctions, that's always a bit, um, a bit funny and hypocritical in that regard, because clearly they have put the most severe sanctions on Lithuania. But the way, <clears throat> the way it's currently being handled, maybe just to quickly talk about that, currently China is basically leaning on Europe to say, well, of course, we have never done anything to Lithuania. They 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 deny that they're doing anything. But if you wanted this thing that doesn't exist, we think that we think doesn't exist to go away, you could completely solve everything by renaming the representative office. So um, that's kind of been the latest. The it's, latest it, it's like the stop hitting yourself argument. Yeah, I mean, I think it's. So you mentioned, you know, threatening Germ German auto manufacturers with not having Lithuanian parts, that kind of thing. Has has Europe kind of caved to that? It's very difficult to get the details. Um, I there's there's been this letter that got leaked where the German Chamber of Commerce and the Baltics wrote to Lith the Lithuanian government saying, look, if you don't improve your relations with China, we're going to have to like cut you out of our supply chain. So th that leaked. Um, it's been very difficult, at least for me, maybe some people have more inside information here than I do, but it's been difficult to get at the exact extent, like how much this has happened. Um, according to some people, China has not enforced this very strictly, including because of some pushback. But I don't, I personally can't tell you the exact extent, like how much of it is enforced, where it's not enforced. Um, I think they've kept it at a level where they can basically keep this as a latent conflict in the background where Lithuania suffers some 
from it, but they don't enforce it consistently. So that they they will also maybe face less backlash from the suppliers. And they're also, you know, by enforcing it inconsistently, maybe hoping because the the EU has taken this to the WTO. So right now there's like this very long WTO process on this. Um, So if China is like inconsistent on it, it may also argue that, you know, Europe is making this up and this doesn't exist. <laughs> um, so it's, 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 it's really hard to get the inside, the inside details here unless you work for one of those companies or one of the people involved in the negotiations. But the, 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 the bottom line is I think it's being enforced very inconsistently and loosely um, so as to keep all options, keep up the pressure, but not cause too much backlash from all of Europe, I think. So just enough social and psychological pressure to try to make Lithuania cave without getting any um, backlash themselves. Sort of. They are still getting bash- backlash and Lithuania still has not caved. Um, so it's not it's not working, but I think they're keeping this at like the slow le- low level simmering conflict where it's not at the at the top of the agenda, but it's still relevant enough for you know, for Lithuania to maybe change at some change policy at, at some point. Um, it's yeah, is it strikes me as a pretty typical way of handling these things. Yeah, it definitely sounds familiar. Just keeping Lithuania relevant enough for Americans to occasionally look it up on a map. So, do you think tying the time is back to Taiwan? Do you think? Uh, what lessons do you think China has drawn from Russia's invasion of Ukraine? You can maybe round out with that. Yeah. Um, so one, again, I think I think I might have mentioned this at some point, but people in Beijing are probably currently studying urban warfare, um, probably studying the more like defense techniques such as, you know, the one that, that Finland has for itself that basically just denies any invading country, any, any movement. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm sure um, people in Beijing are, are updating their, their strategies on that. I do think again, on the, on the positive side, it has certainly um, like, I don't, I don't know whether people in the Chinese military before were convinced that they could have it easy in any invasion of Taiwan, but it certainly put the possibility of, even if you think you're going to have an easy time, you might not. Um, So it certainly raised, raised apprehension on, in that regard. Um, But like I said, on the other hand, it has probably, and again, speculating because I don't have any inside briefings from Zhongnanhai or from the people's liberation army, um, the, the, the people who argue that the U.S. is not intervening, is not going to intervene, probably have an easier time right now to make that case mm. um, because because of the way that in this Ukraine conflict, there's been like a line drawn in the sand and the way that both Europe and the U.S. have communicated that they're terrified for good reasons to go to war with a nuclear power. Um so it's it's you know it's two there's different conclusions that are going to be drawn from this, and I I just hope that the people who argue that this is 
an unnecessary, stupid, reckless risk uh, are listened to. Do you think that the sanctions that the U.S. and Europe have put on Russia have had an effect on how China thinks about invading Taiwan? Yeah, thanks for thanks for bringing that up. Um, <clears throat> yes and no. I think they're watching quite closely what the instruments are, and I'm sure that they're gonna. The Chinese government is gonna work hard over the next couple of years to make China less dependent on or less interdependent with the West, which um, I think it can do to some extent. I think there's gonna be limits to what it can do, but it's gonna work harder on that plan, which it was already pursuing before before the war in, in Ukraine, right? Like it was already trying to make itself less dependent on, on the West and have more, you know, basically be able to rely on itself and others that are not considered hostile. So it's gonna accelerate that. There is, I think, gonna be greater reluctance both in the US and in Europe to apply this full set of instruments on China rather than Russia, because China, like our, our economies, like China is more important for our economies than Russia is, despite any you know dependence on, on, on oil and gas. So I think China probably also knows that there's gonna be greater reluctance on the part of Western actors to impose the full spectrum of sanctions. But I'm, I'm sure it's taking note and it's, you know, figuring out how to, how to preempt, how to get China's situation where it can um, be, have as little impact as possible while understanding, I think, that they can't completely reduce or eliminate all of these interdependencies. Well, thank you very much for joining us today and sharing this information. Thanks for having me. Uh, for anyone watching who would like to, you know, follow you or learn more about what you do, where should they go? You can find me, I guess you can find me on Twitter. You can find me on my employer's website at gmfus.org. And um, I've written a book together with Clive Hamilton on, you know, CCP strategies to subvert democracies and reshape the world. So I don't know. Usually you, you can find me on the Internet. Oh, the Internet, where everyone's compared to Hitler. <laughs> well really thank you for joining us today it's been great thanks for having me you know one thing that i found very interesting in this this podcast was the idea that you know um sort of china's own propaganda is actually like they're falling victim to their own propaganda yeah don't drink your own kool-aid that yeah. idea yeah well actually you know who you know what it reminds me of grand admiral thrawn Either you guys know, it was a Star Wars expanded universe uh, imperial general, and his shtick. No, this was this is good, Matt. I see you. I see you sneering over there. This is like a, in a book or something. It's a book, and now it's part of the new stuff. But okay, who cares about that? Basically, his thing was is he could look at like the artwork of a culture and figure out its weaknesses. And so, if you look at like you know Communist Party, uh, you know propaganda, its artwork, it's sort of its cultural understanding of things. They view everything through this lens of struggle, that there has to be America as the great enemy. Everything else is just a proxy of this one power. It, it, it's limited by this worldview that it's created for itself. And you can sort of understand that and, you know, know how to fight it by understanding its art. So how would we fight that? Yeah, how do you fight a, a country that's run by people who believe in struggle? 
Uh, struggle harder? I don't know. <laughs> okay. You were doing <clears throat> so, really well. <laughs> so does Admiral Throng have a solution? Uh, I think... I think sometimes he would like use genocide. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's a bad guy. Let's, we're we're going we're to stop this metaphor falling now apart because now. he's really... In, in a way, he was literal Hitler. <laughs> uh, space Hitler. Space Hitler. <laughs> uh, let's not put that on a t-shirt. <laughs> uh, no. Um, but it is interesting, the idea that it reminds me of the whole, we were talking a couple of podcasts ago about whether they really believe that everybody who criticizes the CCP is part of the CIA or something or being paid by the CIA. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing. Like if they really believe that Lithuania is a proxy country for America. Yeah, it's 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 a really limiting worldview, I would say. Yeah. If only being accused of being funded by the CAA meant the CAA would then see that and then actually give us money. No comment. Okay. (laughs) I just want to be here in this moment with you, with us, them. Just feel it. <laughs> it's so uncomfortable. <laughs> feel how your organs respond. <laughs> Mind and body connection. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Thanks for joining us on China Unscripted. I'm Chris Chappell. I'm Shelly John. And at least for now, I'm Matt Ganesda. Thanks for watching.